0: This morning, uh, we are continuing our congregational journey uh, through the Epistle of 1 Peter. We're picking up in the middle of chapter 2. And we've officially reached one of the most difficult sections of the letter, where Peter is addressing three of the most difficult relationships for the first century Christians who would have received the letter. In a nutshell, um, for the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Uh, Peter is going to cover politics, slavery, and complementarianism in one fell swoop. So essentially, I've spent the whole week prayerfully and and carefully preparing to navigate these three pastoral landmines. And if these topics weren't complicated enough, I almost made things even more difficult for myself. Because my original sermon plan involved addressing um, the relationship with immoral rulers today, and Unjust Masters next week, and then covering marriage on May 9th, which is Mother's Day. And you may be thinking, well, Pastor, that's not a big deal. Most mothers in the congregation are still wives too, so you could probably make that work, right? No! Absolutely not! Let me read a few lines from chapter 3, verses 1-7 through to you. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So, yeah, I'm not saying any of those things on Mother's Day. I'll I'll deal with them next week, but I'm not touching them with a 10 foot pole on Mother's Day. So, the plan is that we'll talk about the marriage relationship next week and we'll cover politics and slavery this week. Sound good? Okay, so now before we get into the text, we should retrace our, our steps a little bit because one of my seminary professors used to say that when you're reading scripture, you should always ask yourself two questions. One, what does the text say about God? And two, what does the text say about me? You should always keep those questions in proper order. In other words, you should never neglect the main character of the story in an effort to put yourself In the center of the story, you should never bypass the truth in pursuit of application. You should never skip what God has done in favor of how you should respond. It's what does this say about God, and then what does this say about me, or how should I respond? And so if you flip back to chapter 1, you'll see Peter writing from the same pattern. He starts with God. Look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter describes how God has been carrying out his redemptive plan through all of human history. If you're in Christ, this is your story. And this is what God has done for you. In the past, the Father set his love on you. And the Son sacrificed his life for you. In the present, the Spirit sanctifies you. In the future, the Father will glorify you. Or to put it another way, in the past, God freed you from the penalty of sin. In the present, God is freeing you from the power of sin. In the future, God will free you from the presence of sin. And when we get to chapter 2, Peter dedicates several more verses to the main character. He uses Old Testament imagery to depict Christ as the cornerstone of a new temple that's being constructed with living stones. And then he shifts to practical application. This is where we were last week. So so the idea is that if Christ is your cornerstone, if He is your foundation, if He is your hope, then you should embrace your identity Extinguish your passions, excel at your purpose, and engage with your neighbors. And that was the outline for last time. And that final command serves as a launching pad for this week. In verse 12, right before our passage, Peter writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that, so that when they speak against you as evildoers... They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You know, when we consider the the widening gap between the church and culture, we're faced with the constant temptation to lessen our engagement with the world around us, to to step back a little bit, to to retreat to our, 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 our Christian bubbles, our Christian circles. But Peter doesn't permit it. As one commentator says, Peter is teaching us not to disengage with the world, nor to seek to impose heaven on the world, nor simply become like the world. Instead, the church should display and declare the kingdom. Peter is saying that our ultimate purpose is glorifying God in the world. When you're a citizen of earth, you're concerned with the recognition, praise, and admiration of men. But when you're a citizen of heaven, You're only concerned with honoring God with your works and amplifying God with your words. And so in our text, Peter Peter keeps going with this theme. He continues focusing on how our actions can prime the pump for our gospel interactions. But he'll specifically talk about how submission plays a part in this. How submission in these three particular relationships can result in God's glory. And now, obviously, we don't have to work too hard to see the relevance of the first and third relationships in our current context. You know, with the first one, we need lots of help with coexisting with government officials, because all of us are frustrated with the government to an extent. To be fair, some of you are more upset than others. Some of you spend too much time engaging with political news, but none of us are completely content. With government, there isn't a single person in the room who would say, you know, I'm really happy with the overall direction of our federal government. I mean, all three branches are just killing it. I love, I mean, I look forward to sending my tax dollars year after year because every person on Capitol Hill is deeply invested in the little guy like me. Of course, we wouldn't say that. So we, so we understand being frustrated with government, and we understand you know, being married. And you know, also, many of us are married, and none of us have perfect marriages. I mean, let's be real. Some of y'all fought on the way to church, and if you did, as soon as you turned into the church driveway, I guarantee you hit the pause button on your fight. Hey, look, I know how it is. Okay, every Sunday morning, before late and I even get started on our tasks around the church, we have to feed clothe, groom, and herd three wild little savages out the door. Okay, between the hours of 7 and 9 a.m., the devil is working overtime on Holly Lane. So I get it. So we so we understand that. We can appreciate the value of a discussion about dealing with dishonest governments and imperfect spouses, but then you see this other relationship in the middle. About masters and, and household servants, or some translations say masters and slaves, and you aren't sure what to do with it. Well, we'll wade into those waters in a few minutes, but I want you to understand something from the start, that Peter is using all of these relationships as illustrations for teaching a biblical principle. J.D. Greer explains it this way, he says, these three relationships are merely applications of one principle which Peter is drilling home he's saying that one of the christian's primary callings is to be patient and faithful is to patient and faithful endurance in the face of unjust suffering he reminds us that god is not blind to our suffering and he will give us justice one day but in the meantime he uses our suffering as a part of his redemptive work on earth So again, Peter is arguing that your submission, even to an unjust, immoral, broken, flawed human being or institution, can result in God's glory. Because your submission can display God's character. Your submission can show God's love. Your submission can herald God's message. But if you're honest, you probably don't love the word submission. I certainly don't. When I think about the word submission, my mind goes to three negative connotations. First, the submission of a term paper. And for me, the word submission gives PTSD of a quickly approaching deadline. It takes me back to being in college and or seminary, and it being 11.57 p.m., and I'm trying to upload a paper by 11.59 p.m. One of my best and and worst memories from my time at Georgia College was grinding out a full 10-page research paper from dusk until dawn in the basement of the library one night and going back to the dorm to take a shower, then going to class and turning in the paper at 9.30, and by the grace of God alone, Making a B on that paper that I put together in one night, and actually this weekend I took an unplanned trip down memory lane. I'm on Friday. I came to the office at 8 a.m. And I spent the day working on the sermon, and around 4 p.m. my computer froze, and I lost everything. And so, 31-year-old Beau got to experience some late night riding like twenty-one year old Bo used to be so accustomed to. And I don't like it as much ten years later, I'll just say. So that's a that's a negative connotation. Submission. Another one is, is submission to an opponent in a wrestling match or an MMA fight. You know, in the world of mixed martial arts, the referee will start the match for either knockout or submission. And to be awarded a submission, one fighter will use an arm bar or a choke hold or some other move to get the other fighter to tap out. So submission equals giving up. Submission equals admitting defeat. And then third, think about submission to a higher authority. And we could mention any number of relationships on earth, but we should start with the highest authority, the almighty God. And while we generally understand what the pecking order should be in our lives, we still can struggle with relinquishing control of our lives. On Sunday nights, we're studying the book of, of Jonah, and, and Jonah's story is a prime example of a man wanting to be his own master. Right there in the beginning of chapter 1, God says, Go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, No. And he flees. He flees. And by the way, other prophets doubted God, other prophets questioned God, other prophets avoided God, but only Jonah bought a boat ticket and got out of town. He refused to preach the gospel in Nineveh because he couldn't stand the thought of his enemies experiencing God's grace. He couldn't imagine a world where those other people could taste God's mercy, could taste God's love. And so through his act of defiance, he told God, no, I'm not doing it your way. And so Jonah's story provides a window for us into our own souls. Because on many occasions, both directly and indirectly, each of us have told God the same exact thing. That no, God, I don't want to try this. No, God, I'm not ready for that. I'm sorry, God, but I just can't do it. And the truth is, every human heart has one throne room with just enough room for one king. And we may not love the idea of submission, but our relationship with God starts with submission. Because without submission, there's no salvation. You know, we say this all the time, that it's, it's easy to accept Jesus as your Savior, but it's much harder to submit to him is your lord. But when we read scripture, we can tend to fixate on certain concepts and downplay others and you know, we love it when God calls us to thrive, when God calls us to rise above, when God calls us to live the abundant life, but we don't like it as much when God says humble yourself. We don't like it when God says die to yourself. We don't like it when God says pick up your cross daily, but in reality, God calls us to both, and when it comes to submission, we're called to follow the lead of Christ. At the end of chapter 2, Peter will point to him as our guiding example for submission, but let's start with our calling to submission. Now, for the most part, many of us don't have a a well-rounded theology of, of submission, Especially we're talking about submission to evil people or broken institutions. You know, many of us were taught growing up in the church, either directly or indirectly, if you live righteously, if you attend church regularly, if you study and pray frequently, if you give generously, then you will not suffer in life. And on top of that, we're Americans, We're the give-me-liberty-or-give-me-death people. We're the back-to-back World War champs. We're the freest people in the freest country in the free world. And so we don't really keep the word submission in our vocabulary. And yet, as followers of Christ, we're called to submission in certain relationships. Let's look at this first relationship in 13 through 17. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So notice when describing how we should deal with government, Peter gives two overarching principles. Be subject to every human institution. He says that in verse 13. And then in verse 17, he says, honor everyone. And I love that at the start of 17, he says, honor everyone. At the end of 17, he tacks on, honor the emperor. Now, can't you just picture a group of first century Christians living in the Roman Empire reading this portion of Peter's letter for the first time and saying, okay, honor everyone, sure. But we understand Peter doesn't mean everyone, right? We know what he means. Love the brotherhood, check. Fear God, got it. Hold on, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Okay, so Peter really does mean everyone. And yes, we're called to honor everyone, which means honor your brothers in Christ, your sisters in Christ, honor your spouse, honor your children, honor your neighbor, honor your and, and honor the child in the womb, honor the woman who carries him or her, honor the orphan, honor the widow, honor the oppressed, honor the refugee. And it probably goes without saying, but this also means honor everyone. The President, honor the Vice President, honor the Senate and the House of Representatives, honor the Supreme Court, honor the Governor, and honor all of the lower-level government officials. We're called to respect them. We're called to extend kindness to them. We're called to regard them as fellow image-bearers of God. And most importantly, we're called to pray for them. And now, the natural pushback is this. Pastor, how can I honor someone when he or she believes, supports, and promotes agendas which are counter to my Christian values? Well, the first way I would respond would be to tell you to consider the author for a moment. If you think you have grievances with your leader's I can promise you Peter had a few more. I mean, keep in mind that when Peter wrote Honor the Emperor, he was more than likely talking about Nero. He was talking about a ruler who was so paranoid about plots against him that he had his stepbrother killed, he had his mother killed, and he had his wife killed. He was talking about a ruler who more than likely set most of Rome on fire, and when his constituents were upset with him, he shifted blame to the Christians. He was talking about a ruler who led a season of intense persecution where believers were sewn into animal skins, fed fed to wild wild beasts, burned at the stake, and crucified on crosses. He's talking about a ruler who, while he was still reigning, saw Peter hung upside down on a cross for following Jesus. So Peter, no offense, but Peter has a more reputable gripe with his own writing than you could ever hope to have with his writing. But also, pay close attention to a couple other statements that he makes in verses 13-17. In verse 16 he says, live as people who are free. So understand that you don't honor your leaders because they're superior to you or because they own you I mean, as, a, as a as a Christ follower you're under the authority of God alone so so you respect your leaders but you only bend the knee to your king you know we understand that submitting to the authorities on earth never means disobeying disobeying the commands of heaven Notice in verse 17, before Peter writes, honor the emperor, he writes, fear God, and I'm certain that the order there is intentional. You know, we honor the emperor until the emperor goes against the king of kings. The last April, um, we were just a few weeks into the pandemic. um, I was attending a a virtual conference, supposed to go to, to Louisville, Kentucky, and Eat some good food and see some old friends, but instead I watched from my house. Um, but during a Q and A Q&A session, that the president of my seminary was asked, "When should the church practice civil disobedience about gathering together, you know, against the government's wishes? Like, at what point should we say we don't care what the government says? We're going to gather together." And, and there's a lot of answers to that question, but I thought, I thought at that point in time last spring that Dr. Moeller had a great answer. He said, as long as the government rule is applicable to all, the church should comply. You know, as long as no one's gathering, the church should, should use um, you know, Facebook Live and, and, and live streams and those sort of things and, and not gather too. You know, that's, that's the way that we love our neighbor, you know, by flattening the curve and all that stuff. But then he said, but when the mall opens, the school opens, the rec center opens, and the casino opens, the church should open too, whether government approves or not. You know, and thankfully in the state of Georgia, when the rest of the economy opened, the church reopened too. But some of our churches in North America are still being restricted, and they're currently taking their fight into the courtroom and into the public square as they should. And so we should honor our leaders. You know, we should be willing to lay down some of our freedoms. We should, but we should never disobey God's commands. We should always speak out against injustice. And if we do those four things, then we will make a kingdom impact. I mean, this is why verse 13 says that we should be subject for the Lord's sake. In verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You know, verse 15 describes exactly what transpired in the Roman Empire, and and what can still happen in the United States of America. For the early church, their their submission to government authorities made their gospel more powerful. Listen to how, how British theologian Leslie Newbigin explains it. He says the victory of the early church over the Roman Empire didn't come by seizing the levers of power. It was won when the victims knelt down in the Colosseum and prayed in the name of Jesus for the emperor. In doing so, the entire mystique of the empire, all of its spiritual power, was unmasked, disarmed, and rendered powerless. That's the power of submission. And we see it as we continue to the next section. Verse 18 through 20, Peter gives a different illustration for the same calling. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Alright, so, let's, let's get into it. Just two very important things to understand about these three verses. One, slavery in ancient Rome was not comparable slavery in the early years of the United States. In ancient Rome, you became a slave for one of two reasons. Either your nation was conquered or you sold yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. It was not based on ethnicity. It was not about the superiority of one race over another. But it was not a great system either. And notice Peter's not condoning any form of slavery. Which brings us to the second note: to the entire message of the gospel. The entire message of the gospel undermines the idea of slavery. You know, scripture basically teaches us that all men are created in the image of God; that all men are bonded by a common problem in sin, and all men are offered a common hope in Jesus Christ. Like in a nutshell. That's Genesis to Revelation. You know, and and I wish Peter would have used a different illustration. I, I wish Peter would have at the very least taken a firm, clear, unquestionable stance against slavery here, but he didn't. And I think the reason he didn't is because Peter's not evaluating the social construct that is slavery. He's encouraging the enslaved. He's reminding his his brothers and sisters in Christ that when they suffer injustice, they have a choice. They can answer sin with sin or they can answer sin with righteousness. And if we can try to pull this idea out of first century Rome and bring it into 21st century America, we can see the immense value of what Peter's teaching. Because we live in a society which is obsessed with wrath and not grace. Like We live in, in, in the era of, of, of cancel culture. And cancel culture says, hey, you made a mistake. You messed up and you are not forgiven. Your apology is not accepted. You are done. And so church... When you're wronged, when you're hurt, when you suffer injustice, and you look to those who are hurting you, and and you don't answer their sin with more sin, but you answer their sin with God's righteousness, do you understand how much that will make you stand out in the world? Do you understand how much Christ will be glorified? You know, if you look at verse 21, Peter tells us a portion of Christian life involves being called into unjust suffering. Peter writes, For to this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And this isn't new. We spent almost two years in the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John, Christ himself says, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, but as it is, You don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. And both Peter's statement and Christ's statement follow a simple line of logic that if the world hated Jesus, who committed no sin, who healed the sick, who healed the lame, who brought a message of hope and restoration to God's people, then the world will certainly hate the imperfect people who make up his church, and who often can't get out of their own way. So when you follow Jesus, you can expect unjust suffering. Peter says to this, you have been called, and and Christ left you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. So let's look at Christ as our example here at the end of the chapter. You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And so we see our our calling to submission. And then here we see Christ's example for submission. So how did Christ handle unjust suffering? Well, first of all, he didn't argue with his accusers you know in our broken world justice is not always served yesterday I was reading the tragic story of of James Richardson in October of 1967 James and his wife Annie left their seven children under the care of their neighbor Bessie Reese and their neighbor poison all seven children And all seven children died. And despite no physical evidence, James was convicted of all seven deaths and sentenced to die. And even though throughout the years the neighbor confessed several times and the inmate who claimed James confessed recanted his story, it still took 22 years for James Richardson to get a retrial and he was finally exonerated and released in 1989 at 53 years old. The trial of James Richardson is a heartbreaking tragedy. But all of the worst wrongful convictions in the history of the U.S. criminal justice system can't compare to the miscarriage of justice which occurred in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ was sentenced to death, and yet, as Peter reminds us, he was without sin. And still, no deceit was found in his mouth. And still, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And still, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. Now, church, to to clarify, I'm not saying, when you encounter injustice, that you should be silent. James Richardson was completely innocent and he rightly used every resource at his disposal to prove his innocence. We should speak up when we see injustice, but I am saying that sometimes when you're mocked for your faith, when you're questioned for your faith, when you're mistreated for your faith, when you don't get a promotion because of your faith, when you're ostracized for your faith, your best course of action may be following in Christ's footsteps and refusing to sink to their Level. There are times and there are places for defending God in the public square, but if your argument for Christ involves matching the anger and contempt of your accusers, then you're probably pushing your accusers further away from Christ, and you aren't accomplishing much for His kingdom. In some cases, it would be better to avoid arguing with your accusers in some cases it would be better to answer their hatred with love and as peter continues we can see we can see why jesus remained silent we can see why we don't have to speak on god's behalf verse 23 but he continued entrusting himself to him to his father to a god who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And so the second reason for Christ's endurance and suffering is that he was resting in God's redemptive plan. You see, Christ could endure unspeakable suffering for men because he had unshakable hope in his Father. We can see it in the garden. In the garden on the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus prayed and asked, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And that's from the Gospel of Matthew, but Mark and Luke also mention this, this cup. And in the Old Testament, the cup referred to God's own Judicial wrath on injustice and evil. Ezekiel 23 says you'll drink the cup of ruin and desolation. Isaiah 51 says that it's the cup of wrath, the bowl of of staggering. And so Christ had always known that God's wrath would eventually come for him because the cross was plan A, not plan B. But in the garden, we can see him feeling it for the first time. And I love how the Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, summarizes this moment. He said, Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath. And it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blind, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore God brought him to the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for us, knowing what it was. If Jesus Christ didn't fully know before he took it and drunk it, it would not properly have been his own act as a human being, but when he took the cup, knowing what he did, so was his love to us infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. And so, God set the cup on the table in front of Christ so he could see it, so he could feel it, so he could taste it, so he could touch it, so he could experience it while it was still possible to escape. Jesus could have disappeared into the dark of the night. He could have slipped away without a sound, but he didn't. He could have walked away, he could have escaped the cross, he could have said, Dad, I don't want to do this. You know, I I hate to say it, but maybe we should just let all of human history remain condemned. But he didn't. Because he trusted his father's plan and he loved his father's people. And so in the ensuing hours, The Father brought down unspeakable wrath on the Son, but the Son never strayed from the Father's redemptive plan. He drank the cup in your place so you might regain fellowship with a Holy God. We often say that the gospel can be summarized in four words. Christ in your place. Or as Peter wrote in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Yes and amen. Let's pray. Father, um, I, I thank you for the opportunity to to deal with these difficult verses this morning, you know, Lord, um, we always want to preach the full counsel. We always want to deal with the full redemptive story. We always want to deal with, with the full scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And, and when we do that and, and when we preach through books of the Bible, we come across difficult texts to navigate. And Father, there's a lot of concepts in this passage that are difficult for us. And so, Father, I ask that you would would help us to see Christ more clearly. Lord, for those under the sound of my voice who may not know Him as their Savior and Lord, I, I, I ask that you would help them to see what he did for them when he drank from that cup. And Father, for those who are in Christ, I, I pray that, that you would you would show us how he submitted to your plan. Even though he knew how much it was going to hurt. Father, I pray that when we suffer injustice in the world that that we could hold on to Christ's perspective and we could find rest in in you and and find rest in, in your plans and find rest in your will and find rest in knowing that you can use this pain, this heartache, this suffering, this difficulty for your glory. So, Father, help us to keep our eyes on that big picture. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you that He was infinitely obedient to you and infinitely loving to us.